I do trust indeed that is the prayer of your heart that the Lord would come, yea, even today, before the end of this service even, may the Lord so come quickly. I am not a date setter, I can be post-millennial in my view, I can be new heavens and new earth in my view, but I always believe in the imminent return of Christ, it can come at any moment. And that's what we should be waiting for, because prophecy always has an inherent ambiguity in terms of its timetable or chronology, and that is intentional, so that we will always be ready. Always be ready. So that is our desire today, that the Lord would come, He would come quickly, it would be even so today, Lord, be it so. Until that time, we will persevere in our faith and be faithful to the covenant, and as we participate in life as though this will continue on for some time. We do what we can to prepare for the culmination of the new heavens and the new earth, knowing that our good works will even go into them, and why it is so important for us to take heed to the passage of Scripture from where we last left off in Matthew 18. I will begin reading at verse 17 and 18. I still have a couple of more messages from this particular text as we delay a little bit further here from Matthew 18. Hear now the Word of God. I'm going to begin reading back um, and take this back at verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. He hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you two or three, One or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three of you on earth are concerning anything, um, agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Our Father in heaven, we ask that your spirit would be poured out upon the preaching of your word, and may it be that which carries it into our minds and hearts, to our very heart of hearts, that it would change us. We pray that it would square us up today with your will. We pray that we would embrace this teaching, which is difficult to apply, but is necessary according to your love. And so we pray that you would work in our minds in our hearts to receive this word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the glory of Christ in these things. That we would love Christ and our God and His church and one another. We would love our neighbor as ourself. And so we would apply these things with readiness and according to Your word. So Lord, we ask that the Spirit would Give us an application, not only individually, but also corporately. Work in all these things in ways of which none of us can see except you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
We have taken an extended time in this passage from Matthew 18 to consider the difficulty or this difficult responsibility that the Lord places upon His church, difficult and necessary. These are not suggestions, this is commands. And so obedience to this passage, especially when it gets to this phase of things, and we're focusing here on the corporate aspect of verse 17 and 18, this gets very difficult when a particular matter that started off between a brother in secret now has escalated to the point where it's become public in nature. And when it gets to this phase of the matter of which at this point becomes a disciplinary matter, this is often uh, where people leave the church. Not, not the people that are excommunicated, but other people who find fault or who do not want to go along with this or who find difficulty in this, and, and so they, they end up leaving over these matters. And yet the last thing that Christ says in this very gospel that we read is for disciples to obey all the things that Christ has taught us, including this one. Now, many people in the church would consider the exercise of church discipline to be a contradiction of love. But so often love in the church today is not biblical love, but rather a feeling of accommodation or of tolerance or of acceptance, and how true that is among many churches today. But that's not true biblical love. So don't be confused. Love is defined as obeying God's commandments. And obedience to God's commandments from the heart is love. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is likened to it that thou shalt love the Lord thy, or thy neighbor as thyself. These two hang all of the law and the prophets. See? So we need to be careful here, following this difficult directive of the passage, is biblical love. And as we continue our study through Matthew 18, I'm picking up where we last left off, looking at the various kinds of sins that are excommunicable sins. Sins of which can be to the extent that someone is put out of the church, turned back over into the domain of Satan. And as we looked last time at 1 Corinthians 5, it represents one of those categories of excommunicable sins, and that is one of gross immoral behavior. This morning I would like to consider three other passages that represents three other categories, but even as of late this morning and before I print the sermon out, we're only going to get to two of those three, so I'm going to back that down to two and we're going to cover one a little bit out of order, and dedicate next Lord's Day to the last category of these kinds of sins of which the church is to, expected to, exercise the keys of the kingdom to turn members out of its membership back into the domain of Satan. As we considered last time, the realm of Satan in which one is turned out into is that which can destroy the flesh in order to save the spirit. So therefore, church members who are righteously turned over 
through the faithful administration of the kingdom keys, becomes a target of Satan. If they will not hear you privately, and they will not hear the two or three witnesses, and they will not hear the whole church, then perhaps they will now have to hear from Satan to the place where they will be driven back into where you can, they can hear. This is not a lot different than child training, is it not? child disobeys, and you try to reason with the child. And reasoning only goes so far until you have the child's teachable attention. That is why the rod of correction is that which gives the child teachable attention. That's what church discipline's about. It's about restoration. It's not uh, merely punitive. It's restorative. Now, in addition to gross behavioral sins, as covered in 1 Corinthians 5 of last time, I want to consider two other categories today, and then we'll consider a third one for a total of four. Not that these are exhaustive, but they are representative of the things that the church has to deal with. To the extent that an errant member can be excommunicated out, which is the ultimate and the final form of spanking, if you will, in order to have that person be teachable, attentive to the things of God. So I'd like for us to turn to two passages, or these two categories. The first one I want you to turn to is 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. It would be very helpful if you bring your Bibles during this, because I am doing a fair amount of teaching and not merely preaching. And it would be something that if you don't bring your Bibles, the next time you're confronted with this yourself, uh, to be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within you, you need to be able to explain these things to others. So if you can work along with this, and since God has given us such a wonderful opportunity to have the written word and not only the heard and spoken word, we can now look at it together. So in 1 Timothy verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 19 through 21, the Apostle Paul is writing this little letter to, to young Timothy, and he says, This charge I commit you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, by them you may wage a good warfare having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now he mentions by name two people here. Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he mentions it in such a way that's very much parallel of how he spoke in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, of turning them over to Satan, out of the church, back unto Satan. And the problem with Hymenaeus and Alexander is they were blaspheming God. They were blaspheming God by having made shipwreck of their own faith. Blasphemy simply means to dishonor the Lord. That particular phrase is used several times. It's not merely taking the Lord's name in vain, though that is dishonoring the Lord. But it's even used of Titus 2, chapter 
you know, chapter 2 and verse 3 through 5, where women are to know how to behave themselves, even to submit themselves to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So we can dishonor the Lord in a multitude of ways, but in one way is we can make shipwreck of our own faith. That's what happened to Alexander um, here. This is a very important and interesting window in these kinds of cases for which people are excommunicated. There's a cross-reference here, and a cross-reference with Hymenaeus and Alexander over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 and 18. I'll read that, because one of these men's names are mentioned again in that passage. 2 Timothy 2, 16 but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Now, Hymenaeus, which is the common name here between 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 2, we find that Hymenaeus and Philetus here had turned away from doctrinal truth and they had gone to doctrinal error and they have upset the faith of some. Perhaps Alexander was one of those they upset the faith of through this doctrinal aberrant teaching. So what we have so far are two cases that are excommunicable. From the last time, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, gross immoral behavior. But from here, a second category of excommunicable offenses or sins is doctrinal error or aberration. Those are excommunicable sins. For the last 60 or 70 years of the church history, there has been quite a debate in the church whether to deal with people, with church discipline, with over doctrinal aberration. And for the most part, the answer, the general consensus of the church is no. Apart from protesting or debating against those doctrinal errors, the broad consensus has been, no, it's not necessary to excommunicate people because that would divide the body of Christ. But as John Calvin would say, if you do not discipline for doctrinal aberration, the church will eventually cease becoming the church. And that was the danger of many of the churches of which Christ addressed in Revelation 2 and 3. Much of the church has now retained doctrinal errors in her. Many denominations entertain doctrinal errors. We see trajectories, very sad trajectories in Reformed denominations. Because they do not and they will not discipline over doctrinal aberrations that send their denomination or their church in an entire trajectory away from the Word of God. 
And organizations have not been obedient to Christ on this. But the Bible provides the same direction to the church for someone who is doctrinally aberrant as the one who is openly immoral. In both cases, the church is to deal with the individual in the most severe of terms, and that is to deliver those over to Satan. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, tells one of the reasons why it's so important to deal with this. He says there, and I read, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. There's a direct correlation between Doctrine and division. Or doctrine and unity. Sound doctrine unifies. It never divides. Sound doctrine always unifies the church. And as the church goes through various doctrinal studies throughout its history, you will find divisions at those intersections where people are not committed to the Scriptures for the biblical doctrine. That's the point of departure. Sound doctrine unifies, but people who are not willing to give themselves to the Scripture are those who will divide over those sound doctrines. Biblical doctrine unifies, it never divides. What divides are those men who are not committed to the Scriptures and so lead others away in an aberrant way. Those people who teach contrary to apostolic teaching are those who bring divisions into the church. And the Bible clearly instructs us to turn away and avoid such people. Because by their smooth and flattering speech, they may deceive, and they often do, the hearts of those who are unsuspecting. That's why Ephesians 4 tells us that God has given certain gifts to the church, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, so that they will equip the people for the work of the ministry. And he goes on to say, till we all come to the unity of faith. To the unity of sound doctrine. The faith here is, is the corpus of truth, which is according to sound doctrine until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed about to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. Sound doctrine unifies. Bad teachings divide. There are several biblical examples that we have through Scripture. As Keith has been leading us through the book of Galatians, we have that Galatian error where there's a doctrinal teaching which caused division in the church, particularly between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. 
2 Timothy chapter 2 gives us an example of those who already taught that the resurrection has already passed, of which we just looked at, Hymenaeus and Philetus are of two of those. We find in 1 Corinthians 15 another kind of teaching that was divisive in the church, and, and that is that there is no resurrection. Colossians 2 speaks of divisive teaching in the church that was causing uh, problems within the church, even destroying the faith of some, and some were going after these teachers, and that's the Gnostic heresy, often surrounded by characteristics of food and diet and touch not, taste not, handle not, things that appear to have a wisdom of piety but really are of great error. There are multiple places in First and Second Timothy, these pastoral epistles, even in Titus, where they are warned to against profane babblings, endless genealogies, and old wives' fables that were errant teachings, some of which we'll pick up next Lord's Day. Now all of these aberrant teachings are those that went against the apostolic teaching of the church, and it causes division in the body, and it undermines the faith of some. And these kinds of errors need to be rooted out, and those people that propagate them need to be turned out. Now, I do need to qualify this in some way, because it was a recent question that came up from an email from one of you, and I'm happy that the, it came up, and it gives me an opportunity to pause here for just a moment and frame this in a particular context. And hopefully we'll talk about that even some more next time. Not all doctrinal errors are the same. Some doctrinal errors are of the nature of Apollos, who needed to be taken aside and learn more accurately the things of Christ, of which Aquila and Priscilla did. But others are secondary issues that need to be given lots of charity. Much of what we know as denominational differences fall into this category. But however, the existence of denominations really is a division in the body of Christ, which is evidence that doctrinal differences do cause divisions. And for that, we need to pay attention and repent where we can and where we should because these things ought not to be so. You can almost hear the Apostle Paul telling the church today, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, go right down the pathway here. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that when you speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, how can we be of the same mind and the same judgment? Let's be committed to the Scriptures. Be committed to the Scriptures. So we do need to distinguish between secondary issues and primary ones, as Augustine would say, or at least is attributed to it, that we are to have charity in the non-essentials, unity in the essentials. 
In other words, we need to have charity on those secondary points, but we need to excommunicate from those who stray from the primary ones or there will not be unity. The way to peace is even through the sword, the sword of the word. With that said, there have been lots of studies done. I actually had a book that I was trying to find on my bookshelf today to bring to you to show an example of a particular study that was done at a seminary in this country by a conservative denomination. It was actually done by one of my church history professors. I couldn't find the book, so I won't get too specific. But in his study, and others like it, it has shown that in many seminaries, the more education that the seminarian or the student receives, the less he believed in the Bible. The particular study that my professor did was when students were coming into seminary as a freshman of college before uh, their bachelor degree, they had a particular interview. He asked them the same questions after four years. And then he asked the same question after their master's degree and after the same questions after their doctoral degree. For the majority, about 70 plus percent believed in the orthodox doctrines as a freshman. And then less than a third, by the time they got to their doctorate degree, believed in the atoning work of Christ, the resurrection, the literal resurrection of Christ, the virgin birth, and some of those things that we call core essential doctrines. And this was at a conservative denomination in a seminary of which every one of you, I'm sure, are aware of. If I were to speak the name, you you would be shocked. The higher the education, the less they believed in the Bible. How does that happen? Because there's a respected individuals who particularly have degrees behind their name or who happen to be very charismatic in their delivery or very winsome in their speech. And they have an ear, they have some respect of the students who then embrace the teaching without discernment. And they can teach, even unsuspecting to these doctoral students, or to these unsuspecting doctoral students, aberrant doctrine. Doctrinal errors that divides and hinders the ministry of Christ. And guess who and where these doctoral students then go? These are seminary students. Where do they go? They go to the pulpits. They go to the pulpits. And then they teach. And if a master's degree seminarian student or a doctoral degree seminarian student can be led away, certainly also those among the pews can be led away. And that's how whole denominations have gone in this way. Those kinds of things are excommunicable sins. So excommunicable sins so far we've covered from 1 Corinthians 5, those of gross immoral behavior. Second category would be doctrinal errors that are believed and propagated 
And third, I want to cover this category in such a way that we spend some time here to understand it, we can flesh some of this out in Q&A this afternoon if necessary. I'm going to take this from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and if you would turn there with me, I'd intended to take this one as the last category, but I'm taking it as the third because I want to flip category 3 and 4 to spend some time with this so I have an entire uh, message opportunity for next Lord's Day with the next category. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. And let me just give you the category before we even get started. This category of those which have potential to be excommunicable sins are those who walk disorderly those who walk disorderly within the church. As you read this, I want you to consider how are these walking disorderly within the church? Verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for you are not disorderly among you. We were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if any man will not work, neither should he eat. We hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Not those who are such. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey the word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The disorderly manner in which Paul was referring to here had to do with not working. This is not in the same category as a gross immoral sin of 1 Corinthians 5. It's not in the same category as an aberrant doctrinal teaching as we found in 1 Corinthians. Timothy chapter 1 or 2 Timothy chapter 2. But this is, passage is exceedingly important in the life of the church community. And it tells us here to keep away from brothers who live an unruly or a disorderly life and not keeping the traditions which he received. In this particular case, that traditional characteristic is to earn your living by working with your hands and earning your keep. He addresses specifically in this example those who cannot keep a job or who will not keep a job. There are several corollaries of that particular example here, such as those who will not serve in the body of Christ, Those who are minimalist when it comes to being active or participating in the ministry life of the church. 
Those who let everyone else serve, but they won't lift a finger. Those who want to be served, but they themselves will not. People who love community life, but will not themselves contribute from, to it, only draw from it. Those are corollaries of this particular case of not working, not putting the effort into it. And this is just one of those kinds of categories or examples of those people who are walking disorderly within the church. So we have to think about this in a broad category while Paul is giving us a particular example. Disorderly people like this disrupt the community life of the whole church, the whole community life. That's the general category. Let me put it this way. Those who disrupt the community life of the church by some character flaw in which the person is unwilling to deal with. That's the issue. Those who disrupt community life of the church by some character flaw in the person that that person is not willing to deal with. That's what this category is. We have to spend a little bit of time here to nuance it out a bit. Verse 14 and 15 says, when there's someone like that in your church, he's got a character flaw, it's affecting and disrupting the whole community life because he's not walking orderly and he's not willing to deal with it, you have to note that person, mark him. But you're to treat him as a brother and not as an unbeliever. Now, in light of 1 Corinthians 5, and also 1 Timothy 1, gross immoral behavior and very gross aberrant doctrinal teaching, I would think that the church who disfellowships a person would be called to excommunicate that person to turn him over to Satan and not regard him as a believer. Those were the two other categories. But here the Scripture informs us a little differently that there is a separation here from a church member, but we are to separate from this church member while still admonishing him as a brother and not counting him in those categories as a, one who does not have a credible profession of faith. This is a passage in the Bible where there is some aberrant behavior, and it is wrong, but... At this point in the person's life, it isn't at the level of calling into question that the person is not a Christian. Not at this point. You regard him as a brother. But we need to clarify, we need to mark that person because he is a disobedient brother. We still accept him as a Christian. But nevertheless, there will be some degree of distance between him and us. Now, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, this would appear to be part of a process and not the final state of the matter. In other words, the separation is one as a brother, and it's for a period of time. It cannot be a permanent state. This is my particular understanding of this. 
Now, it may go on for a lengthy period of time. But it cannot go on indefinitely treating someone like a brother who is defiant of biblical teaching and is causing disorder in the church and who is not teachable. See, that cannot be a permanent state tolerated in the church. And neither can we go on treating one like a brother while we're not fellowshipping with them because that really undermines the entire biblical doctrine of the unity and of our baptism and and all of that. It's not a permanent state. I think this is part of the process. It can be for a lengthy period of time, which I'll explain in a moment. But to treat him as a brother and disfellowship him is a state that should be in tension, should not be in harmony, and so it cannot be a permanent state. So if there is a person in the church living in such a way that is causing a problem in the church due to his disorderly behavior, which is a characteristic problem of his, the Bible tells us to mark that person. Now when we do that, there is a formality. There is a formal note that this person is acting disorderly because then the church has to respond in a uniform manner in how we are to treat this person. We can't go on fellowshipping with him. We are to avoid him. We are to admonish him in that time for him to listen. In other words, this is where the manner of his conduct becomes known to the church in a corporate manner His conduct at this point is not at the level of gross immoral behavior like 1 Corinthians 5, nor is it one of serious doctrinal error like 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians 2, or Timothy 2. But the person's conduct is such that he is not following apostolic tradition. Apostolic tradition, what has often been said is the apostolic pattern, becomes precedent for our principle. What he's saying here is this person is not living according to the character of the kingdom. This is not a beatitude kind of guy. This is not a fruit of the spirit walk kind of person. He has a particular characteristic issue, or a character issue, to such an extent that he does not pursue holiness in that area of his life and to the extent that it becomes a problem in the entire community. It's it's like one who is unwilling to work with his hands, and so then he then depends upon the community for that particular support that he himself should be able to give for him and his family and contribute to society as opposed to just purging society upon himself. Make sense? See see how a man that doesn't work now becomes a burden to the entire community? His disorderly characteristic conduct now becomes a problem in the entire church. It's that kind of thing we're talking about. And it's one of a characteristic problem, not not a particular sin issue. It's one of that is in his own character. This is how he lives. This is how he thinks. It's a way of character for him. If you were to point that person out, oh, that's a lazy guy. Laziness is a characteristic of those who 
do not work like they should. Now, in this particular example, the characteristic problem was not working to provide for themselves and for their family, even to contribute to the church and the needs of others. And Paul is giving instructions to the church in 1 Timothy 5, which is correlated here, for those who care for widows. If they're not willing to care for their own widows and their own family, they're worse than an infidel when they can do so. See? In other words, there can be a character flaw in a person's life that can be such that is not characteristic of how a Christian ought to live. And it becomes disruptive to the whole body. And when it becomes and affects the community life of the believers in which he lives, it may need to be addressed at the level where the church will mark the person and avoid that person for a period of time. If the person is negligent in dealing with the problem. Now, I say for a period of time because character problems take time to change. You can't change character overnight. Character changes that are necessary take long times to change. It's perhaps the reason why there's a period of time where we still count him as a brother and not treat him as an unbeliever. That person is to be noted because he's not moving, he's not changing. He's not willing to be discipled on this point. He's not willing to change on this point. He has become closed-minded. He has become unteachable. His pride has kept him at a place where he's not going to change his character. He's not going to put the energy or the work into it. And that can get to the point of being disorderly for the entire community in which he lives. Now, I'm spending some time on this because we're a close community. I'm spending some time on this because we will address this. We will see this come about. We'll have to practice this. This is really uncomfortable. But if we're going to pursue in a close-knit community, we have to help each other with our characteristic sins so that it does not become a problem for the entire community. Whatever a character problem a person has that adversely affects the entire church, it's going to take some hard work to overcome with grace. This is not works and grace. This is grace and faith that works. And if you're unwilling to have that faith work, then as James would say, that faith is dead. Okay? Character change takes time. And so during the time that the person is willing to change, we treat him as a brother and we continue along with him. In fact, I would say that if the brother is willing to change, then he is not to be marked or avoided. As long as the brother is up and to the right and he's willing and teachable and he's willing to be discipled, then we just treat him just like we do everybody else because we're all to a certain degree in that position in our Christian walk. It's when one takes a stance that he is not willing to change, he's not going to work on it, he's going to take a particular stance, I don't want to hear about that, 
right then is a point where it becomes disrupted that we have to mark this person and we have to avoid this person while we're admonishing him to the place where hopefully he'll become teachable. The character change is one of the most important efforts that you will give in your Christian life to the church and to the community and to this world. It will change the world more than anything else that you can possibly do. Live Christ. But some people are are, are just simply not willing to deny themselves and do what it takes pursue holiness and peace with all people. When such a character problem in a person's life affects the whole lot, we must mark that person. We must not associate with them for a period of time while we still count them as a brother, admonish them as a brother. And I believe that's for two reasons. Number one is this. Because a person's character flaw can become the leaven within the church that begins to cultivate that particular character. If we allow this to go on where it affects the whole lot and we do nothing about it, that character can leaven the character and cultivate within the community. And that's where Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good morals. But there's a second reason here and. That is, because character takes time to change, we want to give that brother time to repent, time to be open, time to work, to see that he is willing to be discipled. Repentance and change, particularly characteristic issues in our life, take time to work out. The gentleness of Christ leads us to repentance. There is a grace period in this time. And the key in this time is there a willingness to change. Willingness. You ever had a characteristic problem in your own life and you get up and you commit that sin again and just, ah, you know, and it burdens you so and you don't want to you know, you don't want that to happen again. And so you loathe yourself and you repent and you change it and you fall again. The difference here is that you admit there's a problem, you confess there's a problem, you repent, and you get going again. And you desire for that to change. What we're talking about is a characteristic problem that the person doesn't see, he doesn't desire to change, and therefore it becomes a problem in the whole church. I'm really trying to nuance this thing out, hoping that we can understand this. There has to be a willingness. There will come a time if a person who persists in that state of unwillingness, who has been noted, and we have put some distance while admonishing that person, that he or she would finally be excommunicated because there's not been any progress that had been made or no willingness for any progress to be made. There's a heart spirit that is at the matter here. 
And what we're talking about is an issue that is not one of gross immoral behavior, 1 Corinthians 5. We're not talking about an aberrant doctrine of denying the resurrection. We're talking about a disorderly life not characteristic of the trajectory of a Christian, of one who is not willing to address it, and that becomes effective to the whole body. What kinds of issues call for this particular treatment? Exhibition A, Paul would said here in 2 Thessalonians, is someone who will not keep a job. He won't work for his living. He's lazy. He lives on everybody else. He's got a welfare mentality, an entitlement aspect. And there are other things like that, but this passage doesn't go into list them all or point those things out. He's using this as an example. So what we're left with is this. we're left with is the church's necessity to make judgment calls on those kinds of things. The church has to make judgment calls on those kinds of things. Scriptural leadership and a really good, sound body of believers is essential to helping that body function without dividing itself. This is so important for the life of heritage in any church, any denomination, for us to consider unity. But the closer we live in community, which we are, it's going to be really important for us to know how to live out this community so that we're helping each other grow in our sanctification. I want to give an illustration from a book. It's a book entitled Biblical EQ. It was written by John Edmonston, and he speaks of the sin of folly. Sin of folly that characterizes this particular category of which the Apostle Paul is speaking in 2 Thessalonians 3 pretty clearly. That if the person persists in that folly and is unresponsive to the Christian community, who is admonishing him, then the church should withdraw from such a person. Problems caused by folly. Now I quote from his book. Secondly, there are those spiritual problems based on folly in the human spirit. This is an abiding disposition of foolishness rather than a just one-off mistake perhaps characterized by folly in their human spirit, demonstrates a nature lacking in personal insight and basic wisdom. They are unbalanced and unwise and unstable to rightly judge themselves or others. A foolish person lacks wisdom in one or more key areas in their life that makes the same mistakes over and over again. They are frequently stubborn and unteachable, and education is of little avail until the errant spirit is fixed. Among them that are having an errant spirit, a perverse spirit, a hasty spirit, a sullen spirit, and an inappropriate spirit of jealousy as described in the passages, Bible passages above. He then goes on to 
gives some indications of when folly has overtaken the human spirit. He says, quote, these are just some examples. When has folly overtaken the human spirit? When are the flags going up? When a person consistently makes unwise choices that are not so much bad as just real dumb. They are characterized by a total lack of insight about themselves, their lifestyle, and other people. When they are naive, credulous, gullible, or always falling in love. A deeply derisive attitude toward education, knowledge, and learning and wisdom. That is, when somebody's speaking into them. But they can constantly show off their knowledge, but do not listen to others and are quite unteachable. Foolish habits, erratic behavior, impulsiveness, wild schemes, dreaming, loud, inappropriate, and boorish behavior, lack of insight, poor decisions. The person does not set out to be immoral, but finds themselves easily being caught up in immoral relationships, or they seem unable to avoid bad company. Where a person is chronically lazy, slack, and disorganized, and their life drifts from job to job and failure to failure, when there is a great sense of wasted potential. Poor and very inappropriate communication, such as boastfulness, an inability to listen or be corrected, hasty speech, quick displays of anger and provocation, and little idea of how to be socially appropriate. Foolish Christians, he says, need to first realize that they have been foolish. Once the light dawns, they need to be encouraged to seek wisdom from God. Finally, they need to learn the basic disciplines that will enable them to correct their folly in the light of the new wisdom. This process takes place best in Christian community where accountability and discipleship are lovingly practiced. And that's one of the points I wanted to bring up. The author is making the point that we need each other. We need this community to overcome our sins, and particularly those sins that have so captured us, so incarcerated us, that it has become a characteristic problem of folly in our lives that it affects the entire community. And when that sin affects the entire community, the entire community has to address that particular area of folly in an individual's life. And if they aren't going to listen, you need to mark that person, you need to avoid that person, yet count them as a brother still for this time, hoping that that will win them to at least a teachable spirit so that then they can come to their senses and not be led by the enemy to do the devil's will. The author is making the particular importance of the community here the community in all of our lives to shape us and to shape our character, to be more Christ-like and to be more godly. Let the community be the the rod of God in our lives to, to speak into our lives those changes that need to be made and hold us accountable so that we are progressing from glory to glory in the image of Christ. But the efficacious nature of the community is only when people 
in that community are open and willing to allow others to speak into their lives where they will listen, where they will change, where they will address it, where they will repent, where they will confess, where they will admit, where they will put energy into this, and where they will be accountable to others for the energy spent. So we have three categories that we've covered so far. Number one, 1 Corinthians 5 of gross immoral behavior. Number two, from 1 Timothy 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 3, among others, there's one of aberrant doctrinal, uh, um, doctrinal aberration, doctrinal error. And number three is when there is a persistent disorderly character flaw that disrupts the community life of the church, that the person goes on and not willing to address and stays that way, eventually that will lead to his or her excommunication. Let me tell you this, it all comes down to the end, to humility and a willingness to admit and confess and change and repent for the glory of Christ because no one no one will be excommunicated out of the church if he's willing to live that way. It's simple. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what we're to be. We are to be a community of people who repent and believe the gospel. That should be our characteristic. That should be our lifestyle. We should be humble and teachable and repent. Let others speak into our lives we speak in the lives of others, and we do this in love, desiring the good for others, and not from a critical standpoint. And we want this sanctification of the body of Christ, because if we are not after those things, this will cease becoming a body of Christ in the end. So for the glory of Christ, let us be about these things. We have one more category that we'll cover next Lord's Day. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scripture and the word that gives us understanding of your will, even though oftentimes it challenges our flesh, even though it, it shows us how cowardly we are to live according to the truth. And Lord, it also shows us how proud we are in standing in our own ways. And so we pray that you would give us a spirit of humility, that we would be characteristic of, characteristic of those of the kingdom who mourn, who are poor in spirit, who are meek, who have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Lord, we pray that You would bless this congregation as we not only listen and learn, but now as we apply the Word to our own lives and to this church. So sanctify us in this truth to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.